Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word teaches us more and more about you. Lord, I pray that this evening we would all gain a greater appreciation and understanding for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to start by uh, letting you guys know that uh, whenever uh, Todd and Jerry both approached me uh, regarding what to preach on here and asked if I could be part of the uh, team that helps to teach systematic theology, I looked at the list and I said, yeah, that, that would be great um, as long as I don't have to teach that one. And that one would be this one. Uh, so God has a funny way of doing those things. Um, so my goal tonight is to hope and pray that you guys leave a, maybe just not confused. If you're not confused, I feel like I've done a fairly good job. Um, so as Jerry said, we're going to be uh, talking about pneumatology or the study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, within evangelical Christianity, there seems to be a lack of understanding on this topic. Case in point. Uh, though the Spirit of God uh, is mentioned seemingly innumerably throughout Scripture, there seems to be a bit of a haze over our eyes when it comes to a clear understanding of the Holy Spirit, specifically being the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Between the functions, the gifts, and the imagery that surround this doctrine, it seems that we have a tough time gaining a grasp on what it is that we actually believe. So tonight, I'd like to do my best to unpack this uh, somewhat elusive doctrine, touching on both the person and work of the Spirit, and then at the end, we're also going to look into some of the different camps of belief that there are out there regarding um, the look at the Holy Spirit gifts. So to start, I think we need to ask this question. What is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a person? Or is the Holy Spirit some sort of illuminating, empowering influence that God imparts to us as believers? And the better question might be, does the answer to that question even matter? I would say that I think the answer to this question is paramount. This is of paramount importance. For how we understand the Holy Spirit and what we understand him to be will have a direct correlation on how we relate with the Holy Spirit. For if we view the Spirit as simply God's mysterious power that he gives us, then our focus can easily become, become geared towards getting more of the Holy Spirit. Like he is some sort of additive that we gain in our life to make our Christian walk better. However, if we view the Holy Spirit as a person, the same way we see God the Father and Jesus the Son as distinct and divine within their own right, uh, the Holy Spirit goes from being a mere additive for our life to a distinct and divine person who requires our worship. We no longer come to the table asking, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? We come to the table asking, how can I submit my life more fully to him? For he is God. I would submit to you this evening that I believe 
scripture clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. To illustrate this point, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. Uh, As a brief disclaimer about the scriptures, uh, we went over easy worship before this, and we didn't have the NIV version, which is what I'm going to be teaching from this evening, so we're not going to put them up here. So if you need a Bible, you can look on on your neighbors, but I'm also going to read them aloud. So John chapter 16, verse 7. Here we find Jesus addressing his disciples regarding his impending crucifixion and subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit to them. Listen to how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. He says, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Now, though a passage like this can be very convincing of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, this must not be our only proof. We must search the word more to see if the Holy Spirit embodies the elements that are attributed to personhood, mainly the mind, will, and emotions. Now, as a brief disclaimer, I recognize that we can get sidetracked in the discussion regarding the personhood of God due to our finite understanding of personhood. The problem is that our working knowledge of personhood is centered around our own experience. And so therefore, when we think person, we think those whom we relate with face-to-face. Everyone in here is a person. And so we begin to have this connotation that people equals physical body of flesh and bones. In order to prevent slipping into this misconception, we must remember that each of us are persons. And this is not something that changes after we die. Our personhood is not defined by flesh and bones. In the same way, we understand that Jesus is, was, and always will be a person. However, he did not always have the body that he took form in whenever he came to earth. In John 1... It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was with God. And then if we jump to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. The person of Jesus became flesh. His flesh and bones is not what made Him a person, but rather the person of Jesus simply chose to inhabit This earth suit, if you will. So in order to better grasp the personhood of the Holy Spirit, we must shake off any preconceived notions of physical qualities that we attribute to personhood. Otherwise, when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, we begin to think human being. 
So the Holy Spirit is some type of six-foot-tall, brown-hair, blue-eye man. And that's not accurate. That's not what we're saying, and it's also not helpful. It can be very confusing. Rather, we want to explore the elements that make up personhood, namely the mind, the will, and the emotions. So let's take a minute to explore these attributes as they're embodied by the Holy Spirit. Now, um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through some scriptures really quickly and not have you turn to them. Um, we've got like 15, so buckle in. First um, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows. Romans 8:27. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit has a mind. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Paul then goes on to list the spiritual gifts that are given, summing it up in verse 11 by saying, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. He gives to each one just as he determines, or in other translations might more accurately be defined, just as he wills. I urge you, brothers... By excuse me, Romans fifteen thirty. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle for praying, praying to God for me. We often talk about the love of God, and we also talk about the love of Christ. But are we guilty of forgetting about the love of the Spirit of God? One of the most uh, popular verses, I think, that really helps to give us a clear picture embodying the Spirit of God's emotions is Ephesians 4, verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As can be seen in these texts, the Holy Spirit clearly embodies the three elements of personhood, the mind, will, and emotions. We find in Scripture references... Um, However, I should say, if we search further, we also find in Scripture references to the Holy Spirit acting in ways that persons would act. So I'm going to read through these quickly. 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit is clearly not just God's power that is opening our eyes to what God is revealing to us. Rather, it says that the Holy Spirit is actively searching the deep things of God. And then he, in turn, will share them to us. He is not simply uh, an ambiguous force that is is not at play here. He is actually active within the process of revealing God to us. Revelations 2.7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Galatians 4.6, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. John 15.26, when the Counselor comes, whom I send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth goes out from the Father. He will testify of me. John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And lastly, Romans 8, 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. 
Within these texts, we see that the Holy Spirit embodies the elements of person in mind, will, and emotion. Not only that, but he also searches, speaks, cries out, helps, intercedes, testifies, teaches, reminds, and leads. This group of elements is made up of 12 individual scriptures from the Bible. So as you can imagine, this is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. However, it clearly points us in the direction that the Holy Spirit is actually a person and not simply an ambiguous force. Throughout the Bible, uh, we see a lot of imagery that surrounds the Spirit of God. This imagery is uh, most often, if not always, symbolic of characteristics of the Spirit. So I want to take a moment to touch on uh, some of these image, images and try to bring light to their connotations. Um, the first one would be found in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The act of the Spirit being compared to wind uh, has several different connotations that we can derive from. Um, Like the wind, the Spirit is invisible, yet no less real and perceptible. When we think about the wind... uh, We've never seen it, yet we can see it affects its effects all around us, from the waves to a leaves, the leaves waving in the wind to clouds streaming across the sky. So it is uh, with the Holy Spirit. Additionally, the wind is sovereign. No man has ever told the wind where it should go, when it should start, how it should stop. These things are, don't happen because the wind is sovereign, as is the case with the Spirit of God. As we read earlier, he gives gifts to each one as he wills. Finally, the wind is irresistible. Though we, as mere men, attempt to build structures, buildings, homes, bridges, roads that can withstand the wind, all of us here, especially being from Florida, know that if the right type of wind comes along, All of these structures are brought to their knees and left in ruin. This is the same way with the Spirit. We as men may do our best to withstand the Spirit, but at any moment of his choosing, he can bring the mightiest among us to our knees, left in ruins, crying out for mercy. The next image that we want to look at is uh, that of water. John 7, verse 38 and 39 says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The imagery here points to the Holy Spirit as a life-sustaining resource, which speaks in part to the Holy Spirit's keeping nature within uh, salvation. We're going to define this a little more with the next image, and that is found in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, And you 
also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The standard Greek lexicon uh, refers to the Spirit in these passages as the final installment, deposit, or down payment that pays a part of the purchase price in advance and so secures a legal claim to the article in question or makes a contract valid. In my world... Uh, this type of terminology starts to make perfect sense. So for those of you who don't know, my wife, Allison, and I, um, we, um, we run a photography and cinematography company that um, specializes in weddings. And so on average, our brides will book us about 6 to 12 months in advance. So we are needing to block off their wedding day on our calendar. So there are some assurances that need made in both directions. We need to know that they are definitely going to be getting married on that day and that they're committed to paying us to do the service. They need to know that the photographer that they came and met with is actually going to be there on that day. So in turn, uh, they will give us a deposit and then we will exchange a signed uh, written contract. These monies that are paid up front communicate to us that the bride and groom are committed to having us capture their wedding. Additionally, the signed contract plus the down payment is the way in which the bride can stake her claim to us as photographers. This is the picture that is being painted for us in Scripture. Christ has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until a future date. When those whom God has staken claim to are redeemed for the praise of his glory. These are just a few of the images that surround the Holy Spirit in Scripture. For the sake of time, we're going to move on, but there are others if we had more time we could go into, like the dove, fire, um, clouds, etc. So, Now that we have looked at the person of the Holy Spirit, I want to shift our attention toward his work in the life of the believer. Whether we know it or not, the entirety of our walk with Christ can be traced back to the work of the Spirit. For it is God's Spirit that initially convicts us of our sin. He then testifies to us of Christ, bears witness within us, that Christ is who he says he was. He draws us to Christ, cries out, Abba, Father, from within us, regenerates us, baptizes us, sets us free from the law of sin and death, dwells within us, sanctifies us, empowers us, forms Christ within us, intercedes for us, leads us, speaks to us, guides us in our new life in Christ, teaches us, imparts gifts to us, imparts gifts to others that we might benefit from those gifts, loves us, assures us, keeps us bound to Christ until the eventual day of ultimate redemption where he will raise us from the dead to life everlasting. Our lives as Christians are 100% the result of the Holy Spirit's work within us. So I want to take some time to touch on a few of these areas that I just mentioned as the work of the Holy Spirit a little more in depth. Uh, To start... 
I want to look at the work of conviction within the life of the believer. Salvation begins in each one of us with a profound sense of guilt and understanding of our own sin, followed by the understanding that we need a Savior. This realization is the direct working of the Holy Spirit within each of our hearts. No matter what earthly event led you to that place, whether it was a friend talking to you about Jesus, a sermon preached on Sunday, the sunshine, a bumper sticker, or a song. Whatever it was, that was not the cause, the ultimate cause of your conviction. It may have been a tool in the process, but it was actually God the Holy Spirit that was ultimately responsible for melting your heart of stone and turning you towards Christ. In John 16, verse 7, which we read earlier, it said, But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I go away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world in regard to guilt, in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where he can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world stands condemned. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, which sums up the process of salvation. We recognize that our own guilt is because of sin. We acknowledge that Christ was perfect in his righteousness, and we lay down our lives on the mercy of God's judgment that he poured out upon Jesus. Those facets together sum up the process of personal conviction that leads to repentance. And all three of these are the work of the Holy Spirit. If these are all the work of the Holy Spirit then when we think of the process of conviction and us initially coming to Christ, we recognize that the Holy Spirit actually deserves all the glory. No matter what, what uh, things we remember happening that led us to Christ, we recognize that it was Him behind the scenes the whole time wooing us to Christ. The next area of the Holy Spirit's work that I would like to touch on is that of regeneration. Um, after we experience the initial conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance, the Spirit begins a lifelong work within us of regeneration. So what is regeneration? Well, in his book, The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit, R.A. Torrey defines it as the impartation of spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead through their trespasses and sins. In other words, Regeneration is the process where the Spirit of God brings our dead spiritual bodies to life. We who were once dead are now raised to life. Paul, in his letter to Titus, puts it this way. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Regeneration is an area where I believe we, as Christians, fall into a trap and fail to recognize the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We miss the reality that becoming more and more Christ-like is actually a miracle. This oversight, I believe, is because we tend to forget just how utterly helpless we were in our days before Christ. And to gain a true appreciation for the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, we must comprehend what it is that we are regenerated from. We must grasp the nature of sin, its enslaving power, and the all-encompassing work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. To help illustrate this, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In this scripture, Paul clearly um, paints a picture for us of what life without the Spirit is truly like. He says this in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This passage clearly outlines that before being made alive in Christ, we, as, as Paul says in Romans 6, we were slaves to sin. Meaning that we were powerless to overcome its hold on our lives. Now, again, when we look here, I think we as Americans in this sense can get uh, caught up in a little misconception when we hear slaves to sin. Um, I believe our working knowledge of slavery, if you're like me, is built around what we know. When I think of a slave, I think of somebody who's being held against his or her will, and if given the opportunity, would escape in an instant. And that is built around the working knowledge that I have regarding uh, the slavery that took place in America when African Americans were enslaved. But the picture that Paul paints is much more grim picture than that. Because we were not only enslaved um, physically, but we're enslaved in our minds. To get a better picture of this, I think the slavery that we might want to show is that of a child who is kidnapped and starts to suffer from the Stockholm Syndrome. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist by any means, but anytime I hear these instances where we have a child who's been, a child or even adults who've been kidnapped and then they're kept in a basement or something for a decade, they just blow my mind. Because I don't understand how it happens. I don't understand how they remain there. Because a lot of times it doesn't seem that there is a mass amount of force keeping them there. 
And what psychiatrists say is that there is something called the Stockholm Syndrome, where the kidnapped victim actually starts to side with their captor. So when they talk to them afterwards, uh, they're all of a sudden defending that person who stole their life away. Uh, A great example of this is Elizabeth Smart. The 14-year-old, she was the 14-year-old that was kidnapped out in Salt Lake City. And um, she was kidnapped by a a homeless preacher. And she reported recently that after he raped her, she felt so impure that she began to experience these thoughts. Why would it even be worth screaming out? Why would it even make a difference if you were rescued? Your life has no value. She goes on to say that I felt my soul had been crushed. I felt like I wasn't even human anymore. How could anyone love me or want me or care about me? I felt like my life had no meaning to it. And that was just the beginning. This is what the enslaving power of sin is like. No part of us, even our mind, is drawn to Christ and looking to escape the power of sin. Rather, we are willingly serving our captor, completely blind to the fact that we are running headlong toward hell. We are utterly helpless, in desperate need of someone to save us, renew our minds, and regenerate us from within. When we have this view of the life of sin we begin to gain more of an appreciation for the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration within our life. When the Spirit of God regenerates us, our thoughts, desires, and actions begin to change. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. The Holy Spirit purifies us from within, empowering us to put to death the sin that once enslaved us. This is the process of sanctification. Instead of following after the desires of our sinful nature, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in our lives. Paul says in Galatians that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control begin to replace hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These Christ-like attributes or fruits of the Spirit are not of our own doing, but rather they are simply evidence that the Holy Spirit is working within us. He is the one who gives life. Romans 8, which we just read a minute ago, uh, it outlines what life without the Spirit looks like. Read through me in verse 9 through 11. Excuse me, it already outlined what life without the Spirit looks like. It's now outlining what life with the Spirit looks like. It says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit who is alive within us, raising our spiritual bodies from the dead every day. It is his doing. 
Though we may work towards sanctification, whether by prayer or spending time in his word, fellowshipping with other believers, it does not change the fact that the Spirit is the one who is ultimately responsible and thus deserving of our praise for our regeneration. For lest we forget, our righteous deeds, done in and of our own strength, are like filthy rags unto God. As is becoming the theme tonight, uh, we're going to move on for the sake of time. Um, so the, the next area I want to talk about is that of the gifts. Um, when we start to talk about the gifts, uh, there are really three main camps of belief throughout the American culture in regards to the gifts. Cessationism, continuationism, and Pentecostalism. So to start, I want to um, touch briefly... Excuse me. Okay, yeah, to start, I want to touch briefly on what we mean when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Throughout Scripture, there are many different gifts that are mentioned, so it's, it's quite a broad topic. Um, these gifts are distributed to mankind from the Holy Spirit. These gifts are usually divided into three main categories, the fivefold ministry, the miraculous or manifestation gifts, and uh, what some would call the motivational gifts. The fivefold ministry gifts are derived from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors, some teachers, and evangelists for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Um, the miraculous gifts are considered to be the supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit through the life of the believer. And uh, that can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 4 through 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. The Bible says this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. Um, to another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines or just as he wills. That would encompass the spiritual, or excuse me, the miraculous or manifestation gifts that we will address here shortly. The third category is the motivational gifts, and that would be considered the ones that God has gifted to each one of us. Um, some would say that they are our, our natural talents and abilities that he has given to us that we are to share with the body of Christ. This can be found, uh, one passage that we will read in Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. It says this, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. 
While this is not an all-encompassing list of the spiritual gifts, they make up a good deal of what we are going to be addressing this evening. Uh, So right now I want to take a look at the three different camps of belief. Again, we have cessationism, continuationism, and Pentecostalism. We're going to start with cessationism. Cessationism is the view that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased, as they were given for the purpose of helping to lay the foundation of the church. Thus, they were no longer needed after all of the apostles died, because the foundation had already been laid. Within the cessationist camp, there are actually four sub-camps. We'll hit those very quick. Um, The concentric cessationists, these would believe that the gifts serve to validate the word of God being preached. Thus, no miraculous gifts are needed for today, except in areas uh, where the gospel has not been preached. Unreached areas of the the world might uh, be given these miraculous gifts to validate the word. Classical cessationists say the miraculous gifts uh, had the point of Um, validating the word of God that was being written. Thus, they have ceased. However, they will admit that miracles might occur on occasion. However, they do not accompany the validation of any new scripture and nothing that can be added to the canon. Full cessationists are very easy. No miracles for today, period. Um, consistent cessationists say not only are there no miracles for today or no miraculous gifts, uh, there's also no five-fold ministry gifts. So uh, there is some variance, obviously, between these four groups, but as a whole, the cessationists would agree that the gifts of the Spirit, uh, if not um, most of, they have possibly entirely ceased. Next up, let's take a look at Pentecostalism. Uh, Pentecostalism came into effect in the early 1900s with a group of revivals that took place uh, in different states throughout the country, the most notable of which was the Azusa Street Revival, which took place for almost uh, 10 years in an industrial building out in California. The movement was known for their take on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was most often accompanied by speaking in tongues along with miracles, and dramatic worship services. The Pentecostal movement spread throughout the country over the next 50 years, uh, with revivals popping up all over the place. It then became a catalyst for what was known as the charismatic movement. Some of you may have heard of the uh, Catholic charismatic renewal. Uh, The idea here was that uh, the Pentecostal movement spread throughout denominations um, and hit into some of the more mainline denominations like the Episcopals and the Catholics. Um, In summary, Pentecostalism is known for their focus on the infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, along with a myriad of other miraculous signs, which really would depend on what meeting you were to, to attend. I don't know if anybody's been to a Pentecostal meeting, but these signs often differ from event to event. I've been to a few myself uh, whenever I was growing up, and um, the ones that I can remember were gold teeth. There was a lot of gold fillings uh, going around. And there's sometimes uh, um, holy laughter has been another one of the Pentecostal gifts that you've seen. So it really just matters which uh, event you end up showing up at and how the Holy Spirit moves. Um, 
The next area uh, I want to touch on, and the last one actually, is continuationism, uh, which this would be the position of Gulf Coast Community Church. And uh, if I speak out of line, I will expect Jerry or Darren to speak up very quickly. Um, (laughs) Yes. Okay, so continuationism is similar to Pentecostalism. Similar, but not the same. There are some very key differences. The reason that continuationism is similar is in that continuationists believe that the gifts still are for today. However, one of the main differences here is that Pentecostals would believe that the uh, gifting of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the speaking of tongues. And that it is open for everybody. So if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, then you can expect to be speaking in tongues. And so that is a gift that the Holy Spirit would give to everyone. Uh, The other difference is when, in fact, uh, continuationists would believe that the Holy Spirit is given. Pentecostals would say that the Holy Spirit could be given at a later point after conversion. So we are converted today. And then a month down the line or a year down the line, I can actually receive the Holy Spirit, which would then result in the speaking of tongues and all of these other signs. Uh, That would not be the position of continuationists. They would rather say that the Holy Spirit is given to each person as he wills. Thus, excuse me, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each person as he wills. I was expecting you guys to speak up quicker there. <laughs> so, yes. So, thus, not everyone can speak in tongues. Not everyone is able to teach. Not everyone will be um, able to give radically. Rather, the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the gifts that He gives and to whom they are given. I believe I already went over that. So, let me let me discuss. Um, Sorry, have you ever read anything and you're like reading over the words and no words are computing? And you're like, am I illiterate? Can I even read what I wrote? Yes. I'm just staring at papers with ink on it. <laughs> okay. Oh, my. Okay, so... Um, we'll just start. While Pentecostals believe that the Holy Spirit is given... After conversion, continuationists hold that the Holy Spirit be given to all believers upon conversion. The belief is rooted in the passage we already read in Romans 8, verse 9, where Paul says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. Thus, The proof of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a matter of what gifting you can show, but the proof of being um, filled with the Holy Spirit is that you are saved, is that you are a Christian. For to be a Christian means to be Spirit-filled. The Spirit convicts us. Remember how we were brought to faith, right? The Spirit convicts us of sin, testifies of Christ, bears witness of him, grants us the gift of faith and repentance, and then cries out to God from within us. So it is impossible that I would be able to call myself a Christian without first having the Holy Spirit present in my life. 
So whether you know it or not, if you are a Christian, you are actually a spirit-filled Christian. So to close, um, I just wanted to hit on a few brief points. Uh, You know, this area tends to be a little bit uh, hairy and can be divisive. Um, I'm sure we all know people who, if the the issue of spiritual gifts was brought up in the room, that it's going to become a hot point of conversation and can often result in arguments. So we have our belief on, we each of us have our belief on the Holy Spirit, especially when it, when it comes to gifts. Um, but I would encourage us to all remember that we, have, we all have blind spots. So I, I recognize that a doctrine that we have is something that we believe. That's what makes it our doctrine. So we're not going to sit here and say we believe stuff that um, might be false, might be true. So I understand we're, we're all convinced in our own right. But I, I always try to bring myself back to the reality that we all have blind spots. To me, it's the blind spot doctrine. It's the reality that... Uh, Somewhere along the line, if I wrote out all of my beliefs of God, the Holy Spirit, of everything within Christianity that makes up how I view the world, it's off somewhere. I don't have the perfect doctrine. And so therefore, when we view the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I think we just need to enter into conversations with the blind spot doctrine in mind. That all of us do have these blind spots. Remember, we can look back to church fathers in the past who would have preached from pulpits and then gone home to slaves. That's a blind spot. They missed it. And I'm sure if you sat there and asked them about it, they would be able to give you their scriptural backing however they wanted to, to formulate it. So it, it is something that I, I try to keep in mind and keep me humble with any, any positions uh, that I hold. The other thing that I wanted to close with is uh, when we talk about the, the Holy Spirit and it moving within a church, that a church is being spirit-led, we'll often hear things thrown around about, well, that church doesn't have enough of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's dead over there. And what, what's really being said is usually based upon how they exercise the gifts. Are the gifts uh, constantly in fruition there? Are there people speaking in tongues? Are they dancing during worship? Is it lively? Do they have a set, set list for worship? Or do they just go by the Spirit? These things are not what dictate whether or not a church is Spirit-led. I'm going to go back to John 16. This is where we started. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he... The spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what it is that's yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. I'm going to read that last verse one more time. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. I think a better barometer... For if a church is being spirit-led, it's not for what their worship service looks like, looks like, or if there's a use of all these miraculous gifts within their community group meetings, but is the church pointing its believers to Christ? Because that 
is what the Holy Spirit's job is to do. He comes to us and constantly points us back to Christ. Why don't we pray? Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. Lord, I, I uh, asked it we would leave a little less confused about the Holy Spirit. Lord, the, the beliefs that, that we have, that we would hold them loosely, that we would remember that we all have blind spots. More importantly, God, I pray that we would leave with a greater appreciation for your Holy Spirit, that we would recognize that you're not a mythical force, but you're actually a person who demands our worship. You our God. Lord, would you open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit to see the work of the Holy Spirit that is being done in and around us at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.